Welcome to Stories of Recovery. My name is Robbie Frawley, and on this podcast, I interview people who have experienced and recovered from brain-related conditions such as stroke, concussion, chronic pain, and traumatic brain injury. We discuss their story and highlight the things which have been most beneficial and most important in their recovery. This might be specific treatments or medical professionals that were most critical. It could be books, knowledge or advice which they were given or which they found along the way, or even particular habits, attitudes or practices that help them the most. I've learned that the brain is incredibly complex, that there are many different stories, that different things have worked for different people and that no one's got all the answers. But if you or someone you care about is struggling to recover from one of these or another brain-related condition, the podcast was really made with you in mind. I want you to know that others have been where you are now and that they have gotten better. Hopefully, in the interviews that follow, you'll hear a thing or two which resonate and which help you to do just that. So who am I? Well, I'm a young man who grew up in country Victoria, Australia, and I've had a number of concussions growing up playing sport. After the last one, which was over seven years ago now, I developed something called post-concussion syndrome. I'd never even heard of this, but it left me with ongoing fatigue, headaches, nausea, vertigo, cognitive fog, overwhelm, and sensitivity to impact. It had a really dramatic effect on my life and it took many years, much effort, and great assistance from others to fully recover from it. And now that I am back to 100%, I'd like to help you in any way I can to get you back to good health. My hope is that we can provide some light at the end of the tunnel for you and also give you some useful tips and tricks that might help you along the way. Now, one thing to remember is that the brain is a really marvellous thing and you can get better. I know that for me, when things were particularly tough, I really needed to hear that. I've left in as much of the context, detail and information in these interviews as possible, which means they can be quite long, but they are split into key chapters to make it easier to listen and also to help you to focus on what you need to hear right now. And remember that you can pause and come back to the story in as many small bites as you need. So without any further ado, let's jump into it. In this final episode for the year, I'm speaking with Lloyd Pokinghorn, a 36-year-old newspaper owner and editor and a former mixed irrigator from Barham in New South Wales. Lloyd was injured by a misfiring shotgun in 2013 whilst he was assisting neighbouring farmers to clear birds from their crops. The injuries he received were largely invisible, but the effects upon him were significant. He's one of the most resilient and courageous men I've come across, and he's also an incredible community advocate. This conversation took place in January 2021 in Barham on the lands of the Barappa Barappa people of southern New South Wales. I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening to this conversation. I wish you courage and energy on your own journey forward, and I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation. Cheers.
Thank you very much, Lloyd, for having me here in beautiful Barham. It's a pleasure to be here up in southern New South Wales. Do you want to start off just by yeah, telling us a little bit about yourself and who you are? And Yeah, well, who I am these days is um, a bit of a <laughs> complex uh, discussion. So I was raised, well, I mean, on a, on a mixed irrigation farm. So that's a, what, now north of the New South Wales border? Yeah, basically, yep. It's about 70 k's. Um, and then, yeah, it's part of the floodplain on the mid-Murray. So irrigation sort of came through the area, you know, a good 70, 80 years ago. They were soldier settler farms. Um, yep. Yeah. And then they'd sort of brought irrigation in and the soldiers got to develop the country. And, and yeah, so I was raised there. I, I was one of four one of four kids, and we had a, a great childhood, um, had lots of opportunities to uh, play sport and those sorts of things, so footy and tennis and swimming. Um, and then, yeah, had all the on, on-farm excitement, so, yeah, yeah, motorbikes and shooting and, you know, all the normal things that country kids get to enjoy. Um, and then did primary school in Mullamine and then did high school in Barham, so that's do an hour on the bus like each way to come into high school. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I actually finished up school early, uh, went driving headers, um, did a bit of contracting and then started an apprenticeship essentially when I would have been doing year 12, so I didn't see any point uh, continuing on with school. It didn't really agree with me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, got an apprenticeship with a diesel mechanic, um, yeah, Caterpillar dealer in Swan Hill. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I went and did my time there. Um, trade school was in Melbourne. Um, we were the first year to go through Caterpillar Institute in Tullamarine, so yep. uh, went through that sort of thing. And then um, I actually broke my back when I was uh, a diesel mechanic, so, and then, yeah, eventually had to change and, and went home farming. And then uh, it was a pretty intensive farm, so at that stage I'd – I'd gotten married um, and then our farm was a mix of summer cropping and winter cropping. Um, we'd also do a bit of contract harvesting and spraying um, and then I was involved with industry groups and things too. So, uh, Sort of rice growing? Or- yeah, so rice growing, uh, central exec, I was a delegate on that. Um, I was Walkall Branch president for a bit. Yeah. Uh, I was involved with some CMA land care steering groups. Um, I was president of Little Athletics. I was a director of the Mullerman Grain Co-op. Pretty involved. <laughs> yeah, I had a few things going on and then we had a real estate agency as well so I sort of um, had my real estate ticket too. Um, Far out. All right. Well, yeah. that's a really good – you're a busy man. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, well, there's always something going on so, yep. And then let's go back to January 2013. So um, that's a really good sort of – is that a good representative picture of, of what your life looked like at that point? Yeah, yep. No, that was, um, you know, it was just another day for me. Um, we'd actually – we had quite a big rice year. Um, allocations were good, so we'd done a, a fairly healthy planting. Um, it was a shocking year for birds. Um, so, like, we had – sort of flocks of 4,000 ducks landing on crops and just wiping them out. Yeah, and, uh, right. It cost us about 1,500 bucks a hectare to grow rice and so, yeah, when <laughs> they can smash that in the morning like a good um, wow. yeah, good mob of ducks. So, um, and, yeah, at the time 
Um, we'd been doing quite a lot of shooting and I had a, an older gun that my father-in-law had given me and um, I thought I thought I'd get rid of that and actually buy a new a new gun. So I went and uh, upgraded. So sorry, just to paint the picture. So because of the ducks, it was sort of like it was quite typical that um, the farmers with their neighbours would go out and when when ducks or birds were landing on the crops to go out and sort of shoot to clear them. Is that... Yeah, yep. So, um, yeah, we generally all look after our own crops. And then later in the season, you actually get uh, bald coots coming in and they nest in the crop. Yep. And they actually fold the plant down, they twist it off and they make platforms to breed on. Wow. Is this a duck still? No, no, this is bald coots. So they're also called purple swamp ends. Oh, right. Yeah, it's just before the grain is starting to come out in the plant. It actually makes the plant sterile. So, yep. And rather than making one nest, they just keep making nests um, to show off to the ladies. So, like, you can have one bird that will just keep making nests and just, <laughs> and just wipe out your crop. So right. they're just building impressive houses to... Yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah nice. So, um, <laughs> yeah, and they're... Um, you know, they're quite hard to get out of the rice because yep. they, they just go and lay down right in the bottom. So you got to go and walk through it. And, um, yeah, and we generally try to, to walk through in a line and just scare them off and we generally go then to help the neighbours so they don't just go and reinfest. Okay, there. so that would happen every season. Yeah, but they don't. Like some years you don't get that many. Like it's not too bad. It's a yep. seasonal thing depending on the breeding conditions where they come from and things. So. Yeah. Okay. And so then, what happened? Uh, yeah, what so, happened next? Yeah, we had about twelve blokes out with us. Um, we'd been shooting for a few days, just on and off. We had um, relatives come up, and and yeah. Anyway, this morning we'd, we were over at the neighbour's place, and we'll. Uh, I think it was the second crop we were shooting for the day, and uh, we'll just you get in a line and then you just walk through the rice crop. So you're walking through two foot of plant and probably a foot of mud, so it's pretty hard going. And, um, and yeah, you're in about a foot of water as well. So gumboots or the easiest way is actually sneakers. You just get old sneakers you don't care about and yeah. just bloody smash through it. Um, anyway, there was a bird came up and I um, fired at it at mist and then I, I went to fire again and uh, it just felt like I'd been kicked in the head. Um, so I dropped my gun in the water and yeah, felt a bit dazed and um, yeah, called a few of the blokes over to <laughs> to help me get out. I wasn't uh, yeah, didn't just didn't feel right. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, just one of those split second things that you sort of don't think anything of. Um, anyway, I I got out and I said to the blokes that um, I was going home. I wasn't feeling real well and mm. so. Yeah, I just went home, tried to have a bit of a rest. Sort of straight away? Yeah, I'd, I'd hung around and I'd watch them for a while and, and then, yeah, but I wasn't wasn't feeling good. So yeah. just thought I'd go home and, um, yeah, rest up. It was sort of a busy time of the year for us. I was trying to fence and, um, and yeah, we're sort of getting winter cropping ready at that stage too, so working up paddocks or spraying and, um, yeah. Anyway, I... I tried – I went to see the doctor over in Swan Hill um, just to a GP and and they tried to tell me there was sort of nothing wrong and they thought it was a nasal infection and all these other things. And, yeah. What, uh, what what symptoms did you have at this point? Uh, I just just wasn't feeling well. Yes. It's hard to put my finger on it. I just felt, um, yeah, not sharp and, and not with it, just felt off. Yeah. 
And, yeah, so I actually went back to them um, about five times in you know, about 10 days because uh, I still wasn't well. And um, and that's, I don't imagine, being a young male from rural Australia, that was a common experience for you going to the doctor five times in 10 days either. No, no, generally something's got to be falling off yeah. when, you, when you decide to go. And, and um, so then to be going there and getting told there's nothing wrong with you. I yeah, can only yeah. imagine how frustrating and also sort of bewildering that would have been. Yeah, no, it was. Like I, um, I, there was probably some cultural differences with the doctor um, trying to get him to understand and um, and yeah, to have him try to say it's a nasal infection and all this crap. Like, <laughs> it was frustrating because I was like, no, I've had a gun explode by my head. I think there's something going on. And, um, yeah, and then I gradually just got worse and worse so I'd – I'd start trying to work because um, yeah, I'm still trying to do stuff. How, how far after the like the actual incident um, are we now? Yeah, probably like three weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was still trying to do a bit and, you know, I had my old man on the farm and also had my uncle and stuff and so there's this whole hierarchy. It's a busy time of year. Yeah, busy time of year and um, – you're still a young bloke on the farm, so you're still expected to carry still your weight. Still proving yourself. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so you've got all these other external pressures. Um, and yeah, so you're trying to push on and it's a blokey environment and so you just got to suck it up and keep going. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, every time I'd try to do stuff, I would just get these throbbing headaches that I couldn't control. Um, and if I, I kept pushing, I'd just start vomiting, so I'd just start... <laughs> convulsing I'd, I'd end up collapsed on the ground just bloody spewing my guts up what did you what did you your father and your uncle think when they were saying this um my uncle yeah it wasn't too bad um yeah my dad was worried about me but um yeah it's sort of hard when it's undiagnosed like yeah most people want an answer of what it is or yeah, you know, so they can label you or say yeah you know, yeah <laughs> he's got a broken arm and you know but when he's like mm, he had a gun explode. He's not real well. That's sort of a bit, yeah, a grey, grey area. Um, and then, yeah, so it turned out the muscles in my um, ears had stopped regulating noise too. So I was hearing everything full noise, like just yeah. flat out. Um, and so I had to get around with like earplugs in or earmuffs because everything was just super loud. And, um, yeah, we had little kids at the moment and... Yeah, it got to a stage where I just basically lived in a dark room, like in our bedroom. It was sort of yeah, in one side of the house, so it was sort of a quieter space for me. Um, our living area had a lot of tiles around the kitchen and stuff. And, a lot of noise. Really. Yeah, a lot of noise, a lot of ambient noise, and, and I was, became really susceptible to ambient noise. I'd just start wilting. Mm. Like I'd just bloody... Uh, Get panda eyes, like yeah. The more I, yeah, I just my eyes would get blacker and blacker, and just <laughs> I just bloody fall in a heap. Um, anyway, this went on for yeah a few weeks, and then I couldn't even watch telly or anything. Like it, had, it hurt to watch telly, and I couldn't read, so it sort of just spent on hanging around, which was pretty hard. Like yeah, it's an uncomfortable thing when you're used to working and, and you sort of get so much. Suppose so much of your identity is, is tied up in in what you do and who yeah. you are, and um, and especially when oh, I was going to say when it's a physical job, but I mean by the sound of your symptoms, pretty much everything was almost off the table. Yeah, yeah, yep, and um, 
Yeah, got to a stage where I was that crook during the day. My wife wasn't willing to leave me at home, and so yeah. um, she was bringing me into Barham um, while she'd go to work. And and then, yeah, uh, mother-in-law would supervise me. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'd just sit there and I'd just, yeah, almost be in cold sweats and just feel really shit. And um, and then, yeah, so we we tried some uh, a different doctor over in Kerrang, so that's a bit further for us from Ullamine. That's sort of 100 k's away. And, yep. Um, yeah, and he was, uh, he'd seen me when I was a teenager, so he sort of knew me a little bit. Yes. And, um, and then, yeah, he checked me out, was a little bit concerned. He's like, keep an eye out for this, this, this and this. And anyway, it was about three nights later that um, yeah, one of them came true, which was... Um, one of the symptoms he'd described. Yeah, one of the symptoms he'd described. So I was lying in bed and I just felt this discharge of fluid in the back of my throat. And anyway, it was just this salty shit. I was like, no, that's weird. Anyway, turns out it was uh, cerebral spinal fluid. Um, so they they think between your nasal passage and your brain is like a little skin flap. And then they think the pressure wave of the explosion sort of uh, punched a hole through that. And so, yeah, I started to leak a bit of brain fluid down my throat. So cerebral spinal fluid is the fluid that sits around your brain yeah. in your head to cushion it and also goes all the way down your spinal, yeah. like down your spine. Yeah. Okay, so it's pretty pretty important stuff. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what they get super worried about with infections and stuff getting into that because it can roll you pretty quick. Uh, yeah. And, so, uh, that's, so you're feeling that leaking down your throat. Yeah, yep. I just felt this like discharge during the night, and um, and yeah, it, I don't know for whatever reason it did. Yeah, just dump a bit, and then it'd stop for the day, and then yeah. Yeah, during the night it'd go again. Um, and yeah, so they said um, to go down to Bendigo to emergency, and so went down there. Um, didn't make it past really the waiting room because uh, they. <laughs> It was the same thing, communication again. They didn't really see it as severe or whatever because there was nothing falling off. Or, and I explained them the background and, you know, you wait around for six hours and, and then they go, oh, well, we don't really have anyone on call who could probably look at you anyway. And so basically sent me home again. Um, so I ended up, yeah, driving driving back home. Like and Bendigo is, what, another two hours from here? Yeah, well, for where we were at the time, it was three hours. Yeah. So. Yeah, and so anyway, you end up, which is hard because Lauren's trying to work and got kids and all the rest of it, and um, yeah, life's pretty hectic. And then, yeah, so I went back to Kerrang and said to the doctor there, this is what's going on, and he put me in hospital straight away. Okay. So, yeah, so it was put me on IV antibiotic because I was pretty crook by that time. Um, wasn't in a real good way, and then well, I was probably in hospital for three or four weeks. In, and in where was that in Kerrang? In Kerrang, yeah, yeah. They kept trying to get me into Melbourne so they could check me out, but they didn't have any beds available. And, and yeah, really? Yeah, it wasn't a high priority, so just had to. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Hang around. And so, um, what happened at that point? Um, well, at that point, they'd sort of, uh, yeah. They'd worked out roughly what was going on, but yeah, they wanted to get me down to Melbourne just so they could. Um, but then there was some thought that uh, it's just waiting sort of for the flap to heal up 
uh, between. Okay. Yeah, so that's basically laying flat so you don't get any uh, pressure, more pressure in your head from the fluid. Yeah. And, yeah, so nothing intensive and, yeah, basically bed rest um, would discourage you to get up to go to the toilet and all that sort of stuff. They just basically wanted you flat. Was that comforting at that point to at least have feel like you were you had a doctor who was on the right track or did you still feel pretty lost? Um, yeah, look, I, I was thankful at that stage, um, yeah, that the doctor I had was listening and, you know, was getting some treatment and, Yep, I thought that'll be cool. Yeah, we'll get back here, get rolling right, again. Couple of weeks, <laughs> Dad. I'll be good in yeah, like sure. fortnight. Count yeah. me in for that. Yeah, weird harvest coming up, and I miss my daughter's first day of school and oh, all this no. sort of stuff. You know, it's um, yeah. And anyway, it was, and then um, yeah, I got home and I uh, I still couldn't do anything. Like I was still on. Okay, so they'd sort of said, okay, stay here, lie here for. X period of time, a week yep. or something, and yep. then hopefully it'll heal up and then you can go back to life. Yeah, so I had to go home and I had to still rest up for a while. Okay. Um, I was still uh, essentially on light duty, but I still couldn't physically do anything. Yeah. Um, so I still was overwhelmed by light, still couldn't watch telly, still sound. read. Yep, sound was still pissing me off. And, and then, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, so I spent, Spend most of my day in a dark room, and um, if I would try to do anything, like yeah, I'd try and go out to the shed and just you know do a little job, and I'd end up basically down on my knees, just completely rooted, drenched in sweat, just yeah, drenched in sweat. Yeah, yep. So my um, couple of things happened. So my heart, um, my brain stopped regulating my heartbeat. So. At the time of accident, my resting heart rate was like 64 or something and I was running four or five k's a day and then um, after my accident, my, my resting heart rate was 110. So, so it was just flat out and my sympathetic nervous system had just gone through the roof. Like It was, it was fight or flight and I was, <laughs> I was just wound up to the max. So right. everything was just an overstimulation and, yeah, I just couldn't cope. How were you coping kind of mentally with that? Like, because by this point, what are you, like a month and a half? Yeah, in yeah, yeah. Of something that you're kind of thinking, oh, it'll probably just, you know, I'll see the doctor and then it'll be fixed and I'll do this and then it'll be fixed or yeah. I'll start to see some improvement. And at this point, as you say, you're still in the dark, you're still being completely oversensitised by things. You're going to the shed, which you'd go to every day and, and you're on your hands and knees yeah. in a cold sweat. Like, what was that starting to have an impact or not? Uh, at that stage, I probably wasn't – like I was frustrated. Like I was, <laughs> we had Harvest. Harvest was buddy, you know, on the door and my old man would give me shit about Harvest anyway. Because so, <laughs> I do contracting as well and so he was he was always like going to prioritise our crops. I was like, oh, well, well, all we did was contact a neighbour so it worked pretty well yeah. and, and nothing was always ready all at once. So we worked in well but he'd always freak out because, yeah, you're trying to sow and you're trying to harvest and, <laughs> and, yeah, so my brother moved back from Queensland to drive the header for that harvest, which, um, yeah, was good. And, yeah, so for me at that stage it was frustrating but I, I didn't, you know, it wasn't overly. You weren't too concerned? No, no, not at that stage. I was just thought, you know, we'll heal up and we'd, and we'd go. And the 12 months previous I'd, we'd done succession planning so I'd actually 
bought out my uncle and um, yeah, gone into partnership. So you're, you're under a bit of financial pressure. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. No, like, it's a bit of a... I don't have time for this. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's right. You put your head in the noose of debt and you sort of try <laughs> to bloody, uh, yeah, make things happen. Oof. Yeah. So anyway, we um, continued on like that for a while and then it, it just nothing would get better. Like it, yep. That was probably the, the challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah. The challenging aspect of it. So, so to fast forward then to like, at what point did you feel as though you you started getting better, or you found a, a reason, or um, what was this? I guess the turning point for your recovery. Mine was super ongoing. Um, don't know. It would have been years in before I ever saw any light. That's the end of chapter one. In chapter two, you'll hear about what enabled Lloyd to turn the corner towards recovery.